Hello, you're listening to Flow, the podcast about menstruation, brought to you by Let's Talk. Hello, you are listening to Flow, the podcast about menstruation. And this episode, we're here to talk about people who experience menstruation a little bit differently with some added difficulties. Uh, we're talking about disability, we're talking about neurodiversity and the added challenges that that brings, particularly in the context of menstruation. I'm joined by an amazing group of people that I am delighted and happy to know in real life. And I'm delighted that they're all here to share their experiences and insights and freakouts and pain and everything with you. Um, Letty, would you like to introduce yourself? Right. Uh, so my government name <laughs> is Mafo Silitimile, but I go by Letty. Um, as you've known me for years, we've known each other for, I think, more than five years now, Karen. <laughs> um, I'm now a disabled woman and um, I had a very interesting experience when I started getting my period because during my sickness uh, in 2016, when I got disabled, I didn't have my period for about 18 months or so. So experiencing my period after that long stop was quite an interesting thing. And, and now it's come back with the vengeance. <laughs> so yeah, I'm here just to share the experience with everybody. Fantastic. Antoinette. Hi. <laughs> Would you introduce yourself to our audience? Yes. Yeah. So uh, I'm Antoinette um, Muller. I am a person who does things. <laughs> um, mostly uh, I have an insatiable need to figure out how things work. And that uh, is applied in various ways, whether that's through um, journalism, writing, digital strategy and just a bunch of stuff. Um, I also have ADHD and that is a whole lot of fun when you have um, your period because it can impact everything from the usual, you know, like the, the monthly PMS stuff um, as well as trying to figure out what the hell to do with your medication because the, there's just no funding that goes into, um, well, women and uh, how our hormones might affect something as substantial as our brains <laughs> yeah a whole lot to unpack there uh claire it feels like a good time for you to introduce yourself <laughs> i was just thinking the same thing <laughs> thanks karen um so i'm claire Fouri. i'm a psychologist i work for a place called the neurodiversity center and we really specialize in working with people with neurodiversity um, I have a very special interest in autism and especially women and girls with autism um, on the, you know, obviously on the spectrum. And I work a lot with transgender clients as well. So that's me in a little nutshell. And Zara, do you want to introduce yourself as well? <laughs> sure. I'm Zara Trafford. Um, I am currently a PhD student. Um, but I have a background in qualitative and social science research in, in public health um, and all sorts of issues, mostly around poverty and inequality and issues around access in our country. Um, I'm now moving into disability work. Uh, very much feels like the right place for me to be. It seems like then there's a lot of work to be done as well. So that's nice. It's also a really 
uh, welcoming community so far. So um, that's been great. To the best of my knowledge currently, I am uh, non-disabled and fairly neurotypical, but I have been exploring a possible ADHD diagnosis um, recently. And what else? Yeah, I think that's it. I'm not sure exactly what I can contribute, but I am a very eager listener and participant. So thanks for the invitation. Nice to meet you all. Fantastic. So this is the group of people that I have gathered. And I'm also uh, just to put on the record that I am also on the autism spectrum and the parent of two children on the autism spectrum um, and soon to be stepmother of some children with ADHD. So this is very much a space that I uh, inhabit on a day to day basis. And I, I think it's crucial just to say that, you know, it was so important for us in the books to make sure that we included disabled voices. You know, so many conversations just don't even start there. So as much as um, we're not able to, you know, fund the research and bring some of the expertise that we would have liked to, um, we're at least able to give people a platform and a voice. And Letty, I wanted to start with you. I know you touched on it briefly, um, but one of the things, you know, for me, when you shared your story in the book, was was just the fact that no one had prepared you for it no it wasn't a topic that had come up when when people were were helping you through your your rehabilitation process you know nobody thought to discuss menstruation with you I I was so shocked because I I knew that my body was supposed was was healing and I was expecting it to go back to normal but I was shocked that nobody actually warned me that um, yes, you're taking TB medication now, but you know when you start getting better, because um, Dr. Cindy Rustenkees told me when I got my period that my getting my period was a sign that I was getting healthier. I was shocked that when I left rehab, nobody told me that actually you're going to get your period. It might be a year, it might be 18 months but you're going to get your period and this is what you might experience. Um, it, and yeah, it, it caught me off my guard and it was quite a surprise because I'm like, oh, so my body can still do that, you know, but now having lived um, with the disability and having learned how to manage my period, I'm also realizing that a lot of information gets left out when people leave rehab. And that's why I wanted to be part of this conversation because we are not adequately prepared about what the world looks like outside once you get out of rehab. I was taught about how to go home and make a meal. I was taught about how to go home and please my partner, but I wasn't told about how my body was going to work when I got home, you know? So having to discover all these things and then, I didn't have any information and I got on the internet. I started tweeting and asking, is this normal? Is this supposed to happen? And it feels like living through disability and having all these experiences, my body and my life now feels like a, a, an experiment of self. Like I'm constantly learning about myself because there's so limited information about our bodies out there. You know, so yeah, it, it was quite an unpleasant surprise because I was very sick. I I, I didn't know what was wrong with me when the period came. It came with vomiting. I was sick for like the whole day. I remember it was a Sunday. I, I it took me 
the whole day to figure out that oh my period is here you know so yeah it's we need more information out there <laughs> i mean absolutely i think that's so crucial and and i think and you touched on this as well you know i mean i think this is an example um when i was certainly researching it's it's an example of how science disregards women in the LGBT community that, you know, so many medications, for example, just aren't even tested on women because, oh, hormones, um, you're going to, you know, you're going to mess up our meds. And <laughs> then the people who come along who have those hormones um, really struggle to find the medication and the medical support needed. Um, you know, I know you've spoken a bit about your own journey with that. Yes. Um, it's, it's, the world is, is, is created to, to accommodate men and all their needs. Uh, anything else that falls out of that is an inconvenience. And that's how the whole society functions, even with science. You know, you do look at, I mean, we've got money for Viagra. We know all these things it does, but you don't have anything for women and, when we're reading now and learning that as women get older, some of their sex drives actually increase. So you're thinking, where's the, where's the, you know, where's the help for the women? Because men are getting these pills to have these forever hard-ons. What are we doing to help women? You know, so it's, it's injustice in, in so many ways. And it, it, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's an injustice. It is. And, and do you want to jump in there? Uh, yeah, so I think um, with ADHD specifically, um, and with the meds that uh, often is the first line of treatment, um, I think it's very difficult because it is a schedule six. Um, and because it's that in itself, um, the way uh, people or access to, to, and perhaps Zara can explain a bit more about this, but the access to schedule six medication, not just in this country, but all over, it's insane. I mean, I kind of feel like a criminal every time I go to collect my script. And then hysterically, um, I saw a very funny uh, tweet uh, just last night saying, oh, um, you know, uh, the, the reason it's so controlled is because it's a schedule six and you might become addicted. Um, uh, yeah, OK. Half the time we forget to take our meds or I have thrown away several full boxes of my medication just because why would I check if there's anything in there? Right. So I think even like just from that aspect it is already challenging to do research about how meds impact but then ADHD and autism it's uh and the greater neurodiversity research often overlooks women because one we're so damn good at masking and faking it that so many of us only get picked up um when we're older um and it's the same with I guess the the, the scientific research that's going into it because wow, women can have ADHD, what are you talking about, firstly? Um, and then there's this whole thing about, oh, yeah, and you've got this whole different variable called um, your period that can, you know, just really mess things up. So it's, um, I, yes, there is there is a, a, an overlooking of women, but I think it's, it's it probably uh, gels into the whole thing that people just don't really think about how complicated women actually are um, because everyone will also experience those symptoms differently so how I respond or how my meds interact with my hormones every month won't be the same as another person now we can also add a layer of birth control to that 
um, that level of, of complexity. So I think the, the very important question is, where do you even start? Um, I'm very, very blessed to have a great psychiatrist who is willing to put up with my um, pedantic annoyances of being, hello, doctor, this isn't working, we need to change this. And I think in that way, I am an anomaly because I'm so obsessed with trying to fix um, or find a fix and a solution. Uh, most people, most women just kind of accept that, oh, I should just feel this way. And it's the same with um, uh, endometritis. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce it. But the thing with the uterus lining where you have really bad cramps and for years we've just normalized it. Um, and then suddenly it's like, oh, no, no, that's that's actually an illness. Like it's wrong, um, which which makes it very, very difficult. Where, where do we start? Um, yeah, Zara, well, maybe. I don't know if she wants to. <laughs> well, yeah. When we started this book, we started this book. Uh, she's Her name has come up with the wonderful Dr. Cindy Fonsell. And unfortunately, wasn't that able to finish the book's journey with us. The book is still dedicated to her. But one of her biggest things right then was, you know, so many people struggle with whatever is happening and they're told to sort of take grandpa powders and, and just uh, ignore it. And that was the, the biggest uh, bugbear of her life. Um, <laughs> so I know we've got Zara. I want to come to you in a minute, but I just want to go to Claire because your whole specialism is uh, neurotypical women. This is a hundred percent your field. And so, yeah, I wondered your thoughts on, on what uh, Ant has been saying. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad that you came to me. I was gonna like, <laughs> you know, start jumping in there. Um, but I, you know, what really strikes me in what you were saying, and and what kind of just popped into my head was that us as women, we're actually not kind to one another in these situations, and that makes it so much harder. You know, we often like, oh, you know, she's just got PMS. Like, stop PMSing. You know, just go get a tampon and sort yourself out. So, you know, that's one of the biggest things is that we need to be kinder to one another. Um, so, you know, that's the biggest thing that jumped out there. Um, but absolutely, you know, people with any kind of neurodiversity, be it ADHD, be it autism, you know, be it intellectual disability, having your period is really hard. Um, and it's different. It's, it's experienced differently a lot of the times. And, um, you know, as, as Ant was saying, a lot of women especially and especially those on the spectrum they really want to please their doctors and their psychiatrists so they don't ask for a change in meds or you know kind of look a bit more into it because oh well this is probably what's just expected I just need to grin and bear it and get through this um, and you know as Letty was saying as well you know with it's, we're not informed enough and you know people with disabilities be it physical mental health disabilities developmental disabilities there isn't a lot of information out there explaining menstruation and explaining what happens in your body, explaining all these different hormones, all the different products, you know, it's, it's kind of like figure it out for yourself and, and then get through it. Yeah. Zara, we've come to you. <laughs> sure. Um, well, so I'll just comment on a few things that I thought about as, as everyone else was talking. Um, I, so the one thing was that it's endometriosis, I believe the 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 <laughs> condition that that Ant was referring to. But um, I know it's I, just me. yeah. Full disclaimer: I mean, I'm not a I'm not actually a you know I'm not a quantitative or or clinical scientist. Um, I'm a social scientist working in public health. Um, I do have 
you know, a little more context maybe, but uh, I definitely am not the right person to ask about deep clinical questions. What I will say is um, one thing I think that is quite positive is that um, now, so the difficulty is because there isn't very good attention to women's hormonal needs or, you know, uh, people who are assigned female at birth at least uh, kind of hormonal needs as we as we grow um, and and because as you rightly say a lot of these medicines were developed certainly a lot of birth control for example was developed um, many years ago where it was just considered easier to work with white men's bodies basically uh, which were more kind of standard well rather that they'd been able to collect a lot of averages about those bodies for many years because most of medical science was built on those bodies. So it was sort of a predictable norm to base observations on. Uh, what I will say is that now, if you do a randomized controlled trial about any kind of, with any kind of medication that isn't specifically for just men, you are required to include women in your trial. Um, so that's good progress. I'm definitely not defending the RCT, the randomized controlled trial <laughs> uh, what would you call it? Complex, industrial complex, but um, but uh, that is a that is a, a, a hopefully means that we will have more progress um, going forward. But I think what Anne pointed out there about how autism and ADHD are not considered to be disease, or rather conditions or disabilities that occur in in women or girls. Um, that's that kind of implicit bias that then starts to affect things. So you can have on paper, okay, for for all medication affecting a particular group, you know, or rather affecting the whole population, you have to have an even an even sex distribution. But if there is an implicit bias among researchers that ADHD or autism only really affect or predominantly affect young boys, then that exclusion is of, of women and girls is going to be seen as more acceptable. So um, those are, are really important things to, to think about. I agree as well about we all need to be kinder about the difficulties with um, involved with with the hormonal fluctuations with when with uh, menstruation. I think also what can be helpful is including boys in um, in in those sorts of conversations at school. Um, you know, both for I guess p people who are non-binary and who may have a, a body that's that's female but may not necessarily uh, associate particularly with that gendered identity it's still very important that they learn how to manage that. And I think so that, you know, boys and, and who, turn, who grow up into men have a, have a better appreciation for, for that complexity of, of, of our bodies, of the, 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 some of the difficulties that we go through without just putting it down to, oh, we'll buy us some chocolate or whatever, you know. I um, Side note, but I recently saw the, there's a, there's a um, show where people have to go out into the wilderness and survive for, for many weeks or months. I think I spoke to, <laughs> I think I spoke to you about this already. But um, and there was a whole active conversation on Reddit about whether or not it was unfair that some women had, had got tampons as one of their extra items because they could probably make fire out of that extra item. So it wasn't really very fair. And I'm like, listen, bruh, <laughs> if you have to have three periods in the middle of the wilderness with bears around you and stuff, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> There's no unfair advantage, but yeah. So I'm not sure if that was very helpful at all, but, you know, feel free to ask more specific questions. <laughs> oh, sorry, the last, sorry, the one last thing I did want to say was I did a little bit of research yesterday about what is and isn't available at the moment, and I think, you know, one 
important thing to note is that the Neurodiversity Center was about the only the only thing that came up on the first two full pages of Google results when it came to the intersection between neurodiversity and menstruation. So that obviously means you guys are doing amazing work. It also means there's not enough going on, right? Because there should be more. Um, yeah, and I have a few more comments as well about the kind of broader contextual factor in South Africa, particularly for those in kind of less resourced areas and, and poorer communities, but we can get to that maybe if it's relevant later. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something that's, that just was occurring to me, and, and I think it's relevant with all kinds of disability, you know, I think something interesting that came up a lot in in, the, in writing the book was how many people kind of see menstruation as something sexualized, even though it very much isn't. Um, and and that goes along with, I think there's a tendency to kind of desexualize people with disability um, and also to infantilize quite often, you know, to sort of, um, and so that's perhaps why, again, people find this, this uncomfortable. I mean, I know again, Letty, I know this is really in your in your own wheelhouse, if I can say that. Um, you know, that you you've really been working to against those stigmas. But I mean, I, I wonder how much that plays into the fact that um that really, you know, menstruation and disability is kind of it's like joining together all these taboos that we don't want to talk about. <laughs> Letty? Oh, I thought you were speaking to Sarah. <laughs> no, I thought you were waiting on Sarah. No, I, I definitely agree. With I found that with, with disability, especially with me um, being so vocal about disabled sex, you know, and uh, women with disabilities having the right to actually want, you know, and like sex, even with the disability, because I got disabled in my 30s. You know, I was in the prime of my life. Um, well, I'm still in the prime of my life, but my 30s were starting and then there comes disability. And then I got online and people are saying, yeah, but why do you think people should sleep with women who are not, you know, able-bodied and like, but aren't disabled women, women, you know, that's why disabled sex matters. So having these conversations and, and, being part of, of you know, the, the, the writing group, I'm hoping that we'll keep talking about how um, it's like, I don't, I don't, I hate how this is a constant reminder that disabled women are women too. So even when you're doing research, you need to bring disabled women in and, and, and involve them in the conversation because a lot of the conversations that we're having as disabled women, we're having amongst ourselves because society does not go out of its way to go find us. And if you can't see us, which is a problem if you're physically disabled, that you, the world is so inaccessible that being seen you know, visually is, is such a strange thing out there. So if people don't see us, they forget about us. You know? And when all of this is happening, nobody is taking into consideration that there are other women out there and the women are physically disabled and things do impact us differently. I mean, people have been offering me those uh, menstrual cups and I'm afraid to try it because I'm thinking, but I'm sitting the whole day. I can only imagine how much of a mess it will be you know, for me. Um, and tampons, I'm only comfortable with, you know, a certain size and things like that. So it's, it's, it's things that I'm having to learn 
on my own, you know, and, and using my body as an experiment and, and capturing all of this and hoping that maybe whoever finds my work doesn't go through the same experience as me. If anything, I'm hoping that they'll be able to, you know, navigate disability better, you know, because of, of what I'm detailing out there. So, yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I mean, you said, you know, sort of twice now, you know, you're kind of your body as an experiment and, and, and talking earlier about, you know, how, how, you know, how the fact that she's advocating for getting her medication right is sort of unusual, you know, yes. and, and unexpected. And um, Claire, I wanted to, because I still think there's something here about almost the right to the right to your body and the right to make decisions about your body and how, often disabled people are excluded from that like very basic rights. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm just thinking around a sort of, you know, autism framework, because obviously that's my special interest. And, you know, with, as we've mentioned earlier, with um, women and girls being diagnosed so late in life, if they even do get a diagnosis, that makes a huge difference as well. And, you know, therefore that whole population group is often excluded from, from a whole lot of things too. So, you know, something to be mindful of, of there. Um, yeah, it's, we really do, you know, and, and we, we are, we have to advocate for ourselves. We have to advocate for each other. You know, we have to advocate for the younger generations too. And you wanted to jump in there as well. Yeah. Um, I guess the thing that I, I have to keep uh, or sort of that I, I keep thinking of is we don't actually see autism and ADHD as disability, even though it is right. Like yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, yes. And we don't think about it that way enough. Um, and yet, that is what it is like I can get a tax uh, um, an additional mm. tax benefit if I well had to bother to fill in that mass amount of admin um, but when we're talking specifically about disability like that's uh, that's a whole nother mm. sort of uh, subtext I guess but with that sort of disability like you are literally making medication or researching medication and treatment for that specific disability so it's not it's not that it isn't seen um, because it's definitely known. It's just that it's like no one ever thought that that is a thing that happens, even though it happens every month. Um, and mm. perhaps that's got something to do with, I think someone mentioned it, that the way we treat menstruation as like a sexualized thing in a way. Um, so perhaps it's kind of like, because for so long, so often we were like, oh, I just want to get rid of my period. So let me just take whatever birth mm -hmm. control is going to get rid of it. And then you forget yes. that you even have it. Um, so there's that, uh, that additional, um, you know, well, how do you, how do you research a chemical reaction in your body to a chemical reaction, in your body, you're not having because of something you're taking that's causing a chemical reaction in your body. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, Zara, you said if it's relevant to come back to it, and I think it is, you know, I think that it's relevant to say that all of us are sitting, um, uh, you know, all of us are sitting in a city environment and an environment where we are able to access uh, certain levels of help and assistance. Um, you know, again, obviously, there's still huge divides within that in terms of um, private and public, but there is there is more access there. And again, to 
Um, you know, I was just speaking earlier to to people who are just desperately trying to get menstrual products out to um, people in rural areas. But if you add into that, Zara, you know, disability, um, which, you know, affects your uh, sometimes your movement, your ability to literally go and access um products, healthcare, et cetera, or as Letty says, your which kind of products you can be accessing and using, um, you know, literally sometimes your ability to change your products and, and maintain that um, hygienically. Uh, you know, if you add all of those factors together, there's some really uh, difficult circumstances out there. Absolutely. And I think, as I said to you, you know, um, menstruation specifically, which, which as you rightly said, is included in, in sort of sexual health. I mean, it's broader sexual and reproductive health, mm-hmm. um, but nonetheless still in that category. And I had also noted, you know, this conception of people with disabilities as being asexual and the association there and how it's kind of quite hard to, like, merge those two, it seems, for some people. Um, but, you know, one, one important thing I noticed when I was looking at the existing policy well, there's a there's a 2019 document called the Sanitary Dignitary Framework um, from the Department of Women, Youth, and People with Disabilities, Persons with Disabilities, um, which does refer refer to disability and tries to kind of acknowledge, you know, a spectrum of disability and that sort of thing. Uh, talk about inclusion of disabled individuals, disaggregation of statistics on the basis of, of different types of disability or on who, who is and isn't disabled. But it doesn't really get into the nitty gritty of how people's specific needs will be affected by diverse kind of neurological situations or physiology. It definitely doesn't get into the different ways that menstruation might be experienced or kind of handled or coped with by, say, um, an autistic woman or, or, or girl. Um, and part of the difficulty there is that in our, in our government system, we have um, our guidelines and our kind of overall instructions come from a national sort of centralized point, which is very good at signing on to UN declarations and things like that. Um, we have good fairly good policy, especially for the region and and kind of rhetoric around it. But the follow through and the sort of implementation side is generally held around provincial and municipal governance. And so that's where that difficulty around rurality or different resourcing across provinces or different resourcing within provinces becomes a really significant issue. And accountability is often devolved to that level, kind of, um, which makes sense in sort of a a theoretical way or even an institutional level in fact in that policy I saw that it's sort of up to an individual school for example to monitor whether or not that's happening Um, I think all of us will understand that that seems like too much of a, of a devolution because other because the the level of responsibility that's already required for like people who are dealing with 50 kids in a class or not even access to toilets for um, you know, able-bodied students, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult for that to happen at, a, at, at an institutional level. Um, so, yeah, all of those things mean that no matter how strong your policy is, um, the, the, the different levels of accountability, kind of monitoring and evaluation uh, and implementation measures at those different levels will dramatically affect the day-to-day reality of, of people living across the country. Most of our population is still rural. Um, so... Yeah. 
Um, but the, but the one big point I did want to make, coming to kind of say, commenting on what all of you have said, I think about how it's good to have a good idea about access to products, right? That's great. It's got to be there. It's got to be a starting point. But seeing a shift in terms of understanding that there will be different ways of, of yeah, physiologically or neurologically dealing with, with the period or, or, or menstruation or the issues around it, let alone kind of, yeah, the hormonal sort of side of things and everything, that definitely is not reflected in kind of current policy or conversations happening there. So. And that, yeah, so that, that actually leads quite nicely into the I'm going to take over as host here. Um, <laughs> um, I actually wanted to ask about, um, from a sensory perspective, Letty's mentioned her experience, but you, uh, um, both uh, Karen and Claire, what's your sensory overload like with, you know, handling certain things? Like I've, I've sort of found, like, as I've gotten older, like I just, but also I've, I've got an IUD, so I'm petrified of using anything like a tampon because I'm going to rip out my whole entire uterus. I've convinced myself. But how do you, how do you guys experience um, the sensory side of stuff? Um, and are there certain things that you sort of feel like, oh, no, that's, you know, the label on the shirt. No, that must go immediately. Is there is there any sort of something that's just too much for, for you guys? Yeah. yeah. Karen, do you want me to? I'll start. <laughs> you go for can, it. You can, you can go. So, you know, from my own personal experience, it's definitely like the week before and during my period, my sensory overload is insane. And, and it differs, you know, it can differ from day to day, from hour to hour, you know, it, it really differs and it, it is impacted quite a lot by menstruation. Um, you know, things from smelling, you know, like my sense of smell becomes particularly acute. It's bizarre. Um, and then auditory sensitivities come along. Um, I don't have so, so many texture sensitivities, Um but, you know, then there are the kind of taste cravings and things like that or, you know, all those fun things. And, you know, this kind of thing is experienced by a lot of women and, and women on the spectrum often. And, you know, from what I've found with dealing with, with so many is that their menstrual period is a lot heavier than neurotypicals menstrual periods. And the cramps that are associated with it are so intense um, you know, I have a client who can't even walk, can't even eat because the pain is just too unbearable. And, you know, often when I when I tell them, you know, actually, this is quite a, a typical thing that happens with with women and girls on the spectrum. They're like, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize I thought I was the only one. Um, so, yeah, it is a, a big sensory thing. And then, you know, going back to kind of the, the different products, it's so important to then explore different products and, you know, to try and figure out what works best. Have yeah. you got something that you can't use at all? Sorry, if you're comfortable in, in, in raising it. Yeah, so so I I don't like using pads because I just you know that you know that's yeah. Um, but you know that that's for me. I, you know, I prefer using tampons. Um, so yeah, you know, everyone's different. Yeah, absolutely. I I my biggest sort of sensitivity thing is is auditory, and um. It's also one of those things we go back to all of this, you know, and all of this is like what is normal and what isn't. And for me, it's been so interesting 
like often with my fiance, I'm going like, I can't sleep because of that like sound. And he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. He can't, it's not registering for him. It's not a thing. And I'm like, it's driving me insane and I can't. And so certainly also pads to me, you know, physically, um, I think I'm hyper aware, like very physically hyper aware when I'm menstruating. And so then I'm like conscious of it the whole time, you know, instead of thinking about it. And then that's really distracting. Um, so I, I certainly, um, you know, have, have found that the tampons work best for me, but I also think, you know, what's, what's interesting as well. And, and sort of, so sort of what we started to touch on and I think, what we sort of maybe need to discuss in the in the next few minutes as we're closing up is like what can be done to help like given the frameworks that we're in and obviously I think one is certainly finding the right medical uh help if you're dealing with hormones and medications and and making sure that you're having that conversation um that you're being like ants be like ants and demand the best medication for yourself and talk about your hormones and your cycle um and I've certainly found that, um, you know, we, 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 we spoke in the book about, um, you know, that apps, that keeping track of things can help people. It doesn't help me because at the moment I'm struggling with adenomyosis and my period is all over the place. But so <laughs> I can't predict when it's coming or when it's not. Um, but that's a personal issue. But I think particularly for, for teenagers, for younger people, um, that they can have that awareness. And I mean, I, I think what's What's quite interesting is that all of us kind of, you know, even Letty, um, you know, you say you sort of became disabled in your 30s. I think all of us kind of came into this understanding of ourselves. In your case, your body changed. Um, but so I'd be interested to hear from Letty, from Anne, from Claire, you know, um, what, what supports you wish you'd had or what interventions or what little tricks you found that you kind of wish, as you said, Letty, like you wanted people to learn from your experience, maybe. So let's start with you. You know, what have you learned that might be helpful to other people or, yeah, what tricks can you offer? I learned that I had to be comfortable with the changes in my body. And if I don't understand what's going on with my body, I, it's okay for me to sit and research and find out and my explaining it to the next person and them saying, actually, that's not possible, doesn't mean that it's not real, you know, because, yes, you might not have had the experience, but my telling you that this is what my body is doing, the next person not being able to relate to doesn't make it any unreal, because I think that's the problem. Women are not believed where they talk. I mean, um, there had to be devices made for people to understand that sometimes your period pain is as, as, as sore as a heart attack. You know, so women are not believed. You go, you say, I, I can't function when I'm on my period and you get a, a panado and what you need is something that's much stronger than that, you know, and, and having to to plead to be able to get help, uh, help for, for our periods is, is the most ridiculous thing. So I think advocating for yourself, unfortunately, it comes at a great cost because you won't always be believed, you know, because you're talking about something that is not experienced by a lot of people. So it feels like a very lonely experience, you know, that it feels like you're imagining it because when you tell people, no, so this is what's happening when I'm on my period. I'm like, really, that, that doesn't sound possible, you know. So even if you're not believed by others, being able to trust your body that it's not betraying you, it really is going through what you see it going through is, is a very big thing. And 
Yeah, um, I think that's important, but I, I also think it's important to stop the shame. Um, I mean, how many of it's... us still get past the tampon to our friend like in a fist? Why? It's a normal thing. Um, so if we can stop being ashamed about it um, and if we can also uh, encourage men and boys to talk about it and not be ashamed and feel awkward about it. Have I lost it's... you? No, we've got you. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You guys have all frozen on my screen and I'm like, wait. Um, so, yeah. And, and I guess um, finding a way to, to make it more comfortable for men to, to buy your partner a bag, a box of pads. You know, I've got a, a wonderful supportive partner who has got no shame about the Quentin Tarantino film that occurs in our bathroom um, ever so often, which is great. <laughs> so, but like, we need to have those conversations more and we need to make it, we need to normalize it um, and destigmatize. Why am I hiding? Why am I, why am I passing a pad to my friend who's having her period as if though it's like an illicit substance? What's wrong with us, right? Um, so yeah, just talking about it a bit more and like, just don't be ashamed. I, I don't have a filter, I guess. So it's easy for me to say, but um, yeah, that would be great if we can be more comfortable in having those kinds of discussions or, or just accepting it. Claire. Mm. I'm going to just echo what Ant and Letty said and, you know, just it really, you know, we, we need to talk about it. It's such a normal thing. Why are we hiding it? Why is it so taboo? Um, you know, and, and I think that the younger we start talking about it, the better, because it's often something that's not spoken about. And, you know, I worked at a school for, for eight years and a lot of my kids there hadn't had the conversation with their parents about menstruation and, you know, they kind of it out themselves or come chat to me about it or you know learn about it in LO so you know that that's something that needs to really really change is that we need to talk about it and it's you know we don't really need to to please the men around us because they feel uncomfortable when we talk about it um, and it, the other thing I wanted to echo is just you know about being kind to myself that's something you know that's only really occurred in the last little while where I'm like you know what it's okay like you know, the week before my period, I have a really bad headache and it's okay to to have some downtime and it's, you know, okay to cry and, you know, feel like, you know, you're this big ball of, of hormones and wanting to cry all the time and that's absolutely fine. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my little comment there. But, uh, yeah. Fantastic. Zara, any last words for us? Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I feel the same about Claire. I mean, as Claire about um, kind of just personally trying to be kinder to myself if I have, I, mine seems to fluctuate quite a lot. Sometimes it's very intense. I had a week last, last week where I couldn't concentrate for about five days in a row. And that's really hard for me as a, as a sort of perfectionist kind of cognitive person. It's hard. And to just try and let it be. Um, and then also sort of more broadly in terms of like agendas and advocacy. Um, I think, you know, the the stuff that I noticed when I did a little bit of research around this is um, that particularly here in South Africa, you know, the, the conversation around menstruation is still very kind of girls and women centered. Um, obviously we know why, uh, but, um, and, and even the SDGs, the sustainable development goals use that term rather than the kind of broader term of menstruators, which I think is quite a useful, a useful shift to make. Um, and it's a key piece of work. I think we need to, to kind of be pushing as well at the same time, kind of in parallel. Um, and yeah, that's, 
that's it. Thank you for inviting Thanks, me. Thanks, everyone. Fantastic. Well, we have episodes um, <laughs> of the podcast on specifically a whole episode on people with periods and all of that and around gender. We have a whole episode on talking to kids and all of that as well. But I want to thank all of you for being part of this conversation. I think my takeaways are that we must include disabled women in all conversations um, and that we need to advocate for ourselves, even though it's exhausting and tiring sometimes. And that is why it's also really important that we need to advocate for each other. Um, and we need to make sure that we bring this topic up without shame um, and without fear in the context where it's relevant. And yeah, I... And where it's irrelevant. I'm just post a picture of your box of tampons every now and again, you know, be like, hey, this is a thing, like, it exists. Yes. It's fine. <laughs> it exists. Yes. Disabled women exist. Uh, like, I, I, <laughs> I, I usually, I post uh, the pictures of my incontinence face at least once a month on my Instagram to remind people that, you know what, um, I'm disabled, I live with incontinence, and you're all going to deal with it, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can do the same with tampons, right? Absolutely. Yes. Two in one, go. <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody. Flow, the book about menstruation, is published by Quella and is available in all good bookstores. This podcast was brought to you by Lilette's Talk, empowering conversations for all life's periods. Join the community now at lilettstalk.co.za.